Our text this morning is uh, still Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, verses 13 through 17. Give your attention to the word of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess and we believe that it is alive and it is active and it is sharp and it comes and it separates the the parts of us that need to be separated. It separates joints from marrow and all these other sorts of things. And and, uh, we need that, Father. We need divine surgery on our hearts so that we might have them put right. And your word is your chosen mechanism to do that, coupled with the activity of your spirit. And so when we come together in this place, we're not coming to hear a talk. We're not hearing, coming to hear a knowledgeable fellow speaking with emphasis. We are instead coming to lay ourselves open before the king of the universe and say to him, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. We love your word, Father. Deepen our love for it even more. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Oh, man. I kind of got waylaid last night. Um, right before I went to bed, my wife was watching something on the National Geographic channel, and, and uh, at the end, this song came up that uh, my uncle had used in some videos that he made from my mom's old home movies. And it was pictures of my brother who was killed by, in a car wreck uh, when he was 18 months old before I was born, and me as a baby, and then my other brothers. And, and uh, that, that song just, I hadn't thought about it, you know, lost my mom a little over a year ago. And man, that thing just waylaid me all of a sudden. I just was in tears and I just had to give up and go to bed. And I don't think I'm still right this morning. So if you pray for me, I'd appreciate that. Uh, we, we come to our, our last sermon uh, this morning on the subject of spiritual warfare from Ephesians chapter 6. And just to recap briefly... We are told in the scriptures that the individual Christian is a soldier who is engaged in a war. And when you come to Christ, you attract uh, the enemy and the attacks of the enemy of your souls just by coming to Christ. So the minute you come to Christ, you're in the army now. And it's not optional. You can't not participate in the war. You can only participate badly and lose important battles, or you can participate effectively and win some of them. Secondly, we we notice that the bulk of our weapons package is defensive in nature, and that's important because that tells us 
something very key about the nature of the Christian life. You see, our main task as warriors for Christ is to occupy spiritual territory and then to hold on, uh, to hold on to it, to defend it. Uh, Recall, for instance, in our studies of Genesis 1 through 3, that God has given something to humanity which theologians call the dominion mandate. We have a basic task. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule it. And humanity has not had that mandate removed from us, uh, even though we have fallen into sin. Uh, The fall changed how we go about it, but the mandate is still in effect. It is the people of God, however, redeemed and restored, who are tasked with carrying out that mandate most fully, because we alone among the children of men are equipped to properly subdue and rule the created order in the way that God wants it to be ruled. And so to form, for instance, a Christian home built on biblical principles, where we raise up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, that is an act of dominion, and it will be attacked, and it must be defended. To raise up a a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church that teaches people how to become like Jesus in the process of following Him, that's an act of dominion, and it will be attacked, and it must be defended. To, To do your work your secular labor with skill and craftsmanship and integrity so that you contribute to the good in the world. That's an act of dominion. And you will be attacked. And you must endure. And you must defend. You see, you you don't need to go out looking for demons to fight with. Just do what God calls you to do as a Christian, as a wife or a husband, as a father or a mother, as an employee or a a business owner. Do it quietly and and do it well. Do it as unto the Lord, and the demons will find you. They They will find you. You don't need to go looking for them. They'll find you. Speak the gospel to your unsaved friends and neighbors from a life posture of gentleness and kindness and love and respect and be always ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. To do so is to take dominion and the demons will not let you do that in peace. They will harass you, probably by sending human beings who unwittingly serve them to harass you. And you must remember that those people whom the demons send are not your enemies. Paul tells us that. Those are not your enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers. Living your life towards them in such a way that you bless them as they curse you and praying for them as they they persecute you and and doing good to them as they despise you and use you. And, And in doing so, Paul says, you overcome evil with good. You're not overcome by evil, but you overcome evil with good. That's the ultimate act, friends, of taking dominion. When you do that, you show them what true power is and that you've got it. And it will astonish them. It will amaze them. It will perplex them. Satan will rage behind the scenes. But God might well use that to bring your enemy into the kingdom of God and turn them into your friend. You know, I, just, I just saw last night a little snippet of a video. Uh, and 
and there was a court case. It was a, a female police officer who had wrongfully shot a man, a black man, in his own apartment. And the man's brother, he died. So she's on trial for murder or manslaughter or something like that. And, and his brother was testifying, the dead man's brother. And he said, I, he said to this woman in court, I forgive you. And I want you to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He said that in open court. And then he asked the judge, can I go give her a hug? And the judge said yes. And this was all televised. And he walks over there and he hugs this woman who murdered his brother. And he's weeping and she's weeping. And the whole world looked at that in astonishment. That, friends, that man had power. That man was taking dominion of the situation under God in order to effect change in the world with the Holy Spirit's help. That is the kind of dominion that we need to be taking. Carry the love and the, the goodness and the message of Christ with you always. Spread it wherever you go and you will have all the spiritual warfare you can handle. And you will learn. You will learn. And you will fight. Let, let me just add one other thing while I'm thinking about it. Your, your strength in matters of spiritual warfare is not at all dependent upon the strength of your body. The older you get, the weaker your body gets. It grows frail. Paul says that, doesn't he? Outwardly, we are wasting away, Paul says. But your spirit can and should grow stronger and brighter and more capable and Satan should tremble more before the prayers of an 80-year-old saint who has walked with Jesus most of her life than he does before the prayers of a 30-year-old saint. In spiritual things, the older you grow, the mightier you grow. But that's only true if you live your life in constant pursuit of intimacy with God. It's not an automatic or a given thing. Listen to the Dallas Willard writing in the Divine Conspiracy on this. He says, we should, first of all, find ourselves constantly growing in our readiness and ability to draw our direction, strength, and overall tone of life from the everlasting kingdom, from our personal interactions with the Trinitarian personality who is God. This will mean, most importantly, the transformation of our heart and character into the family likeness, increasingly becoming like children of our Father, the one in the heavens. The agape love of 1 Corinthians 13 will increasingly become simply a matter of who we are. But the effects of our prayers, words, and deeds, sometimes our mere presence, will also increasingly be of a nature and an extent that cannot be explained in human terms. Increasingly, what we do and say is, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and every part of our life becomes increasingly eternal in the sense explained in earlier chapters. We are now co-laborers with God. Aging, accordingly, will become a process not of losing, 
but of gaining. As our physical body fades out, our glory body approaches and our spiritual substance grows richer and deeper. As we age, we should become obviously more glorious. The lovely words of George MacDonald once again help us to imagine this crucial transition. Our old age is the scorching of the bush by life's indwelling incorruptible blaze. O oh, life, burn at this feeble shell of me till I the sore singed garment off shall push, flap out my psyche wings, and to thee rush. There is nothing sadder and more pathetic than an older Christian who is still a foolish, self-absorbed spiritual baby after supposedly belonging to Christ for decade upon decade. In our culture, at least, as you age, you are most often, very often, freed from the responsibilities that were yours when you were younger, to care for children, for instance, the responsibilities of work and vocation because you've retired, many other things that burdened your time when you were younger, and therefore they made seeking and serving the Lord harder. As you age, those fall away. They don't stay your responsibility. You have more time. You have more freedom. It would be a shame, therefore, to squander that gift of uninterrupted, less encumbered time on TV shows, on self-indulgent little luxuries. A church full of old people should be the mightiest church in the things of the Spirit. Satan should tremble before her. Younger Christians should want to come and be a part of that body because there is so much radiance and so much wisdom in these aged saints in a church. You should be our most effective warriors, old people. Every once in a while, we get a cultural touchstone or an icon that conveys the message or, or a vision powerfully. And, and I think I know one. I, let me ask you, who is the oldest smallest, seemingly most frail Jedi warrior? Yoda, right? Can we cue up the video, please? Right? Yoda, he walks everywhere with a key. You're Yoda, old people. You're spiritually Yoda. That's you, aged saint, or it's supposed to be. Acquire goodness, acquire wisdom, acquire power from God. Be venerable. Let your gray hairs be a crown of spiritual glory. That's what God has for you. Well, last week we looked at the, the first two out of six pieces of equipment. We looked first at the belt of truth, and we said that truth in terms of knowing true doctrine and as well as truth in terms of integrity in the inner person are both permissible understandings of what the belt of truth is. And perhaps the best way to think about the belt of truth is... Um, is like this. Before I set out to do battle with a foe as formidable as the devil, I should ask myself, do I really want to fight? Am I sincere about this spiritual warfare?
It's the first notch in the belt of truth. What do you really want? What are you about? Are you sincere in your pursuit of spiritual things and spiritual warfare? You are not ready to fight unless you know the truth and the truth dwells substantially in your inward parts. The second bit of kit was the breastplate of righteousness. And once again, it could be thought of as the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is credited to you when you believe savingly on the Lord Jesus. His righteousness is that which keeps you safe. It assures you of eternal life. You will, once you belong to Jesus and are justified by grace through faith, you are counted righteous for the rest of your life until God brings you into glory and finishes making you actually righteous, okay? So that's a, that's, a, that's a great defense, isn't it? That righteousness that keeps you safe and assures you of eternal life. But we could also think about it in terms of the righteousness that grows up within you as you walk with Jesus over time. The kind of righteousness that Jesus was talking about when he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was merely natural and legal. Perhaps the best way to think about this is by asking yourself the question, am I living the kind of life that enables me to engage in this conflict? Let me tell you, if you're walking in known sin and there's a core of rebellion there, Satan knows that. He can see that. And that will weaken you. And he will exploit that. He will bring it up. He will show it to people, cause you to lose credibility. The next piece of equipment, says Paul, are the shoes. Shoes, says Paul, are a sense of readiness given by the gospel of peace. One of the reasons for the consistent success of the Roman army was their ability to cover long distances in a short period of time. And if you read any of the Roman military history, you will see over and over again, Rome caught her enemies off guard and unprepared because they could move so fast and their enemies consistently figured on having more time to prepare their defenses than they actually ended up having because Rome arrived earlier than expected. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Roman soldiers wore shoes that were studded on the bottom with thick, sharp nails, kind of like spikes or cleats. And, and a great deal of war fighting in those days was hand-to-hand -hand combat, and often it was groups of men in mass formations, which were called phalanxes, and they would crash into each other on the battlefield and literally push against each other with their shields while trying to stab each other with their swords and their spears. And if you were in one of those formations and your feet slipped on the mud or the wet grass and you fell down, then the integrity of the whole formation, the whole phalanx was disrupted and the whole formation was vulnerable then to injury or death or defeat. So being able to stand securely and, to, and be able to resist being pushed backwards or even pushed over and instead being able to drive forwards with force was absolutely critical. That was, how the, that was how the battles were fought. And the Romans relied on these shoes both to make rapid progress over uneven ground when they were trying to get to the battle 
as well as secure footing in the battle. If you had your shoes on, you were ready for battle. You were confident. You felt prepared. A person who experiences the peace that passes all understanding, which is the fruit of believing the gospel, is in that state spiritually. You are in a state of confident, relaxed readiness. You feel prepared. You're not anxious. You're ready to to march to the battlefield and to take your place in Christ's phalanx. And perhaps the best way to think about this piece of equipment is by asking, am I prepared to fight? Am I prepared to fight? Next, Paul mentions the shield, the shield of faith. Now, there were a couple of different kinds of shields that the Romans used. The one that we've very often seen in the movies is, is a small one about the size of a hubcap or maybe a trash can lid, and it was worn on the, the back of the, the forearm of the non-dominant hand. And you often saw this one used in gladiatorial games and old Roman mosaics like the ones from the villa in Bad Kreuznach in Germany. I had a, there it is. There's a slide of it. That's a, that's a dates from 58 B.C. There's a, it was a floor in a very nice villa in Germany. That's not the shield that Paul is talking about here. The shield Paul writes of here is called a scutum, and it was about four feet long and about three feet wide. It was curved, and you could hide behind it like this, or you could have it out in front of you like this, and you could hide almost your whole body behind it. It was made out of wood, layered in plies, and then it was wrapped with leather and then with fabric. And before battle, the shield was drenched with water because at least some of the arrows that were fired were called fire arrows. And they've actually found some of these fire arrows, uh, ancient Roman fire arrows, in in an archaeological dig in Syria. And it was interesting how they designed them. They took the normal arrowhead off and they had a cage made of cast iron that was pointed. And they would put a coal inside of that arrow in in that cage. And they would fire it. And of course, the wind whistling past would make it glow hotter. And they mostly used them not against people necessarily, but uh, against animals and to try and light the grass on fire at your feet. Or if they were a siege weapon, you know, you were trying to set a thatched roof on fire over the wall or something like that. But they were still nasty. You didn't want to get hit with one of these things in the chest or in the, the tummy. And so these wet shields would tend to catch those arrows, and then extinguish them. And, and, and Paul says, look, the devil has all kinds of fiery arrows in his quiver. Paul mentions things like tribulation, anguish, persecution, famine. Some arrows kindle flames of doubt. Others fan the flames of lust or greed, or vanity, or enmity. We do not look at ourselves in spiritual battle. Instead, we set our eyes on God. We we place our life, our confidence, our trust in Him for all of the issues of our lives, and for death, and for eternity as well. We rely on His Word and on His promises. We trust that He is intimately involved in all of the situations of our lives, and He's working to bring about what's good, and we rest in that. We hide behind that. 
we are calm and secure with the shield of faith guarding our vital organs. You know, it's interesting. I just finished, a, I'm finishing, I haven't quite finished, a book. It's a little bit scholarly. It's by a professor at the Mennonite Seminary in southern Indiana. He's a Harvard PhD, so he's no dummy. And, and it's called um, Patient Ferment. That's what it is. And, and, and it's the story of, you know, the question, how in the world did the early church do what the early church did? Because the, the, the spread of Christianity in the first 300 years is frankly astonishing if you pay any attention to it. it there was a, one historian, a church historian, who, who estimated that in the first 300 years, Christianity went from a, a few hundred people in a backwater Jerusalem to, by, the, by 300 years, half of the people in the cities in the Mediterranean basin were Christian. It's just unprecedented in human history. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, obviously the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with that, but the church had a lot to do with that too. How did the church do what the church did? And this guy's answer was, the main virtue that the Christians were encouraged to practice was Christian patience. And all in the world Christian patience is, we're going to talk about this in detail after Easter, but all in the world Christian patience is, is first of all a confidence that God is at work in every situation, and therefore, and he's not in a hurry, and he's going to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. And so you, you stop trying to control all the outcomes. And, and then just a, a, a resting in him, that he's working and he's taking care of you, and you don't need to control the outcomes, and you just trust him. That's Christian patience. And, and so in the midst of all that, if you're being persecuted, you say, well, of course I am. It's okay. That's what, that's what I expect. And God is at work. Now, Lord, show me what to do to win a soul out of this. Or, or you could be ill, sick in your body. And you say, that's okay. God's at work. Either I'll get better and go on to serve him for many more years, or I'll die and go to heaven. It's okay. Either way, God's at work, and I'm not worried about it. And so, so you just... You trust that he's at work, you trust that he's working for, for you and on your behalf, and, and you just do what you can do, you don't do what you can't do, and you don't worry about things. You just, you just live that way. That is so important. And that was the key, says this professor, that was one of the main keys to the, to the, the fact that the Christians lived like they did. They, didn't, they, didn't, they had resources to rely on that other people don't have. And they knew their resources, and they weren't worried about anything. And that was tremendously attractive, that patience was. Perhaps the best way to think about this question is by asking yourself, am I able to defend myself against Satan's attack? The last bit of defensive equipment is the helmet of salvation. It's interesting here that... that the verb that Paul uses here to talk about the helmet, he says we are to take the helmet, take the helmet. The, the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes, he says put on. The helmet of salvation, he doesn't say put it on, he says take it. You could also translate the word as accept it or receive it. It's, it most often means to receive something from the hand of another person. And this shows us that salvation is a gift. It must be received. It must be 
taken from the hand of the master who offers it. This, this helmet was made of bronze or, or iron. It had a, a lining of felt or sponge to make the heavy weight bearable and more comfortable on your head. Nothing short of an axe or a hammer, a war hammer, could pierce this helmet. Often it had a, a visor that would come down and shield the upper face, and it had cheek pieces that, would, that were on a hinge, and you could pull, fold them up or they could come down and tie under the chin. Even today, helmets are important. We, we wear helmets to protect our heads. I, I never, for instance, ride my motorcycle without a helmet. If you get in a wreck with a helmet, you stand a chance of living. Without one, you're probably a dead man. And head wounds are instantly debilitating, and they are often fatal. You're, you're roadkill if you have an accident without a helmet. Salvation is the most important issue of life and death. Without the helmet of salvation, Satan will knock you on the head and will spill your soul. The Christian says, I am safe and I am secure, for he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it to the end. That's the helmet of your salvation. That is your protection. Lastly, we've got our offensive weapon here. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We win battles against these spiritual enemies and against their human sock puppets with a wise stroke from the Word of God. Note well that when Jesus was tempted by the devil, he replied each time with Scripture. It is written, he said. He did that for a reason. There's a pattern there. It is written, the devil flees from the truth of the word of God, ultimately. It, is it not interesting that in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, when the rich man looks up from hell and he begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them about hell so that they can escape from hell, and Abraham says, no. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. And the rich man says, they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, but if somebody returns from the dead, they'll listen to him. And Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't listen when someone rises from the dead either. Mark well what that means. It means that the confidence of heaven is in the Bible. The confidence of heaven is in the Bible. If the word of God won't accomplish it, it will not be accomplished in spiritual terms. The scriptures are God's chosen instrument of spiritual power. Yesterday, today, and forever. You don't need sophisticated philosophical arguments. You just need to let the Bible speak. If something's going to be accomplished, it will be accomplished in that way. Just let the Bible speak. Someone, someone asked Spurgeon one time how he defended the Bible. He said, I don't defend the Bible. You don't defend a lion. You just let the lion out of its cage. And that's exactly how we should be. The Bible is a lion. It is a, a spiritual power. It is that weapon which tears down lofty arguments raised against the things of God. You don't have to be sophisticated. 
You don't have to understand the finer points of your opponent's ideology and all those other things like that. You simply have to stand there and go, the word of God says this. And if God is going to use it, he'll use it. And if he's not, then it's not your problem. It's his problem. You just speak the word of God to the relevant situation. Do it with gentleness and respect, absolutely. But, but, don't, but understand, it is the word itself and the spirit of God animating the word, which is the power. And so all you got to do is know it. Learn your Bible. Love your Bibles. Marinate in your Bibles so that you can be equipped in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation to win people to Christ. Just let the lion out of its cage. You know, David has a wonderful psalm, Psalm 144. And, uh, and we're just going to close with a few words from Psalm 144 and then a, a little bit of a message from a Puritan writer. Psalm 144 of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Trains your fingers for war. Listen to, to William Gurnall here just briefly. He writes, having exhorted the saints at Ephesus, to a holy resolution and courage in their warfare, the apostle leads them out of themselves unto his almighty strength. The strength of every saint lies in the Lord of hosts. God can overcome his enemies without our hands, but we cannot so much as defend ourselves without his arm. God was the strength of David's heart. Without him, David would be filled with fear at the words of the Philistine. He was the strength of his hands, and he taught his fingers to fight. So he is the strength of all of his saints in their war against sin and Satan. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock, my redeemer.